Lord God, many have waxed eloquent about the concepts that are before us in your word this morning. Some have even done so famously, but many have missed or garbled what you are actually saying here. So I ask that you would grant to these who hear this day, whether here in person or online, to see and understand clearly what you have shown to me from your truth. And may they rejoice in all that they are, those who have believed in you, and in all that they have in Christ. And may they live out what you have created new in them. I pray. Amen. I was just 13 years old when Martin Luther King made his final speech, one of his most memorable. March 3rd, 1968, he was in Memphis, where he seemed to clearly anticipate his own death. He was assassinated the very next evening, March 4th, at the Lorraine Hotel. In that final speech, he said that there were difficult days ahead, and of course, he would like to live a long life. But he said, a day before he was assassinated, that he was no longer concerned about living a long life now, because God had taken him, he said, to the mountaintop, and he had seen the promised land. An obvious allusion to Moses, whom God took to a mountaintop and let him see the promised land of Israel, which, as you know, Moses himself was not granted to enter in this life. Martin Luther King, of course, did not mean literal Israel when he said what he said. He understood correctly that the promised land of Israel on earth pointed to a greater ultimate destination. King said that while he may not get there himself, that's the part which led many to say after he was assassinated, did he know? While he would not get there himself, as a people, he said, seeming to imply those who were part of the civil rights movement that he led, they would get to the promised land, suggesting certainly that their efforts against racism and injustice would be successful. And certainly various political successes did come. But that didn't mean that as a people or as a whole group, they would all get to the promised land, certainly not in the actual meaning of the biblical term which ultimately points to getting to God's very presence in heavenly Mount Zion, which is not accessed politically or socially, but spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ.
And so now I read our text. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Mount Zion, Mount Sinai, these are literal, geographical, historical places, and they are used by God in today's passage to illustrate two competing systems. The Jews looked to Sinai, they looked to Sinai and to Moses, but they improperly assumed that salvation... And spiritual life was all about laws and regulations and obedience. They didn't see, they wouldn't see, that Sinai actually emphasized the need of salvation, the need of salvation. It was not salvation, but it emphasized the need of salvation because of our sin which all human beings are guilty of, and sin which we cannot solve on our own. And they would not see, did not see, that the literal Mount Zion pictured the true way of spirituality to heavenly Zion by grace and faith in personal relationship with God. Not a place of fear and separation like Sinai was a place of fear and separation because we sinners before a holy God who judges must be separated from him but Zion was rather a place of love and joy and peace in the direct presence of Jesus our loving Lord and Savior the new covenant supersedes the old and is infinitely better than the old. We've heard about that in Hebrews already. It is emphasized here. So the point is, in this context, how foolish would it be to turn back to the jagged cliffs of Sinai seeking salvation as the Jews did through the impossible dictates of the law. 
Not as though the law is bad, not as though the law doesn't have good purpose, but to seek salvation through it is impossible and ultimately fruitless. Because through the law, no flesh is ever, will ever be justified. Romans 3, verse 20. The law reveals our sin so that we might turn to Christ in faith to save us and that we might thus come to Zion, the heavenly Zion. It was, of course, not what the Old Testament taught, but it was what the Israelites in overwhelming majority had come to believe, that is, that right relationship with God was a matter of their own obedience to God's law. After all, they received God's law through Moses on the mountain, and they decided that, therefore, right relationship to God was all about, ultimately, obedience to that law. But to try to approach God on the basis of our own obedience, on the basis of our own works, is in effect to come only to Sinai, the place where God gave the nation his law, and only to discover, if one sees it rightly, that our works, our obedience, always falls far short, and we cannot be saved in that way. The law shows man his sin, that he might trust in God's promise of a Savior. This conclusion that they drew at Sinai ignored the promise that had been given them since the beginning, since Genesis 3. A Savior is coming. That is the one in whom you are to look and trust for salvation. Trust in the atoning blood of Christ as we more clearly see it, for our salvation. To trust in that is to come to Mount Zion where our heavenly high priest mediates to us, mediates for us, rather, and brings us to the Father. At Mount Zion, the city of our living God, we find reconciliation and peace and eternal life. Mount Sinai was, of course, the mountain that Moses climbed to receive God's law on behalf of Israel. And God told Moses to warn the people not to go up to the mountain, not even to touch the mountain. Any who did, man or beast, would be put to death. Exodus 19, verses 12 and 13. God's very presence there at Sinai consecrated the ground and set it apart from all who were infected, plagued by sin. Thus, if an uninvited sinner touched the mountain when God was present, he or she would die. So Sinai was a place of awe, a place of terror for Israel, a place of fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as our text describes it. When the Lord spoke from the midst of the smoke, covering Sinai, the people begged for Moses to speak to them instead of God. Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. Deuteronomy 5, verses 24 to 27. So frightening was Mount Sinai. But the Jews defined themselves in their history through Mount Sinai. The great majority of them missing the real point of the law. 
regarding salvation. Instead of seeing God's law in God's law, rather the impossibility of its own obedience because we are all sinners, and thus seeing that the law puts before us the absolute and vital need for a Savior, one had already been promised, they saw in God's law the plan to salvation by obeying the law. Salvation itself is not found at Sinai because Sinai merely points to the need of salvation. Those who do not see their sin do not see the need of a Savior. Christians, true believers, even back then, meet God at Zion, not a place of terror, a place of mercy and of grace. At Zion, God administers to us a covenant where he doesn't merely write on tablets of stone, but he writes on the tablets of our hearts. Redeemed and sanctified are such hearts by faith in Christ. So now what I want to do very quickly is kind of review Hebrews. This book gives us a tour of biblical history and geography. As we have marched through the book of Hebrews, we were taken to various places in Bible history, recalling what happened at these places and always relating what we see there to the person and work of Christ and then to the life of Christian faith. In different chapters, we find ourselves in Hebrews at the Exodus in the wilderness, in Abraham's tents, before the veil, in the tabernacle, in the courts of Melchizedek, at the gates of the Garden of Eden, and in the ark with Noah above the flood. Always, always, in all of these places that we are taken in Hebrews, a point is being made that the Old Testament, like the New, is all about Jesus Christ. Wherever we go in Scripture, the message is always to turn to Christ in faith. The promises, the prophecies of the Old Testament all find their yes, all find their amen, if you will, in Jesus. So in this great unfolding panorama that the book of Hebrews brings to us, there is one consistent message, namely that we must hold fast to Christ our Savior. Whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever anxiety, whatever fear might threaten or befall us. Hebrews 12 then, where we are now, concludes by taking us to another stop on this Bible lands tour. This time to Mount Sinai where Moses brought Israel out in the Exodus to meet with God. When God delivered his people from bondage in Egypt, he didn't just turn them loose, free from slavery, to do whatever they pleased. He brought them out to the mountain where he dwelt so they could worship him. This reminds us that the very purpose of our deliverance, the very purpose of our salvation, the very purpose of the church 
is to worship and to serve God, not to please the world, not to market goods and services to a secular culture, but to please our God through our living worship. But it is not to Mount Sinai in the desert that Christians are told that we have come. Mount Sinai is brought into the picture in our text, but only to present a contrast by which the mountain of salvation, Zion, may be seen more clearly. Zion, Sinai, Christ, Moses, gospel, law. The Old Testament illustrating and pointing forward to that which we can enter and receive at Zion. When man came to God at the mountain of the law, there was separation between man and God, a separation made necessary by man's sin and God's holiness. The blazing fire at Sinai conveyed the same message, really, as the flaming sword that the cherubim held, blocking access to the Garden of Eden after the fall. No access to fallen humanity. Only God's leaders, Moses and Joshua, could even go up to the mountain and on to the mountain. And only Moses, all the way up into God's direct presence. So very much like that which was illustrated year after year by the high priest in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Holy of Holies one day a year. We who are in Christ have not come to a mountain of fear and separation, but to a new mountain where all that divided man and God has been pierced and blown away by the word of the gospel. It has been torn open, that, that holy of holies, like the veil in the temple surrounding the holy of holies. And what we find is a shining city the city of the living God. The very sight of Sinai produced fear. That may not be the way we think of it. We think, wow, that would be so very impressive. But the imagery is clear. The very sight of Sinai produced fear. But Zion is the scene of great encouragement. From Sinai came booming threats. But from Sinai comes the voice of invitation. To approach, sorry, from Zion, to approach Sinai was to tremble in fear. Even Moses felt it, verse 21, our text. To draw near to Zion is to find hope renewed with each step. This is the difference, you see, that the coming of Christ made. He removed all that stood opposed to us with God. So there is now no fire, no fear, no darkness, just a mountain of grace. On Mount Zion, the city of God. Augustine wrote so many centuries ago, there are two cities. There are two loves, two competing systems. The city of man based on the love of self, wrote Augustine, which means enmity, division, separation with God. And the city of God based on the love of God in the place of self-love. 
In this world, God's city is weak and lowly, but there it is presented to our faith high upon the mount of God, wreathed in glory. Abraham, we remember, lived in tents. Abraham was but a pilgrim in the land of promise. But all the time, he was yet a part of this high city. And it is to this high city that he set his gaze. He and his family dwelt in very dry places. But all the while, the promise of Psalm 46 and verse 4 was true through their faith. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. By faith, Abraham and his family believing drank from that river. Even as the Spirit of God, through the gospel, refreshes our souls today and plants our roots beside streams of living water. In the last chapter of the Bible, the Lord Jesus pronounces his last beatitude. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city, Revelation 22, verse 14. And with that pronouncement in the same chapter comes the last invitation in the Bible. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost, Revelation 22, verse 17. These are the things within this city. Engraved upon her walls is the inscription said Ezekiel the prophet, the Lord is there, Ezekiel 48, verse 35. Everything within this city, Zion, said Zechariah the prophet, everything within it is inscribed, quote, holy to the Lord, Zechariah 14, verse 20. To this you have come, says our text this morning, if you are a Christian who has put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have come to this mountain. You have come to this city. Look upon it with the eyes of faith. All that is there is yours. All the blessings of God and even God himself, this is yours. Furthermore, what we have in Zion and it is a welcome sight, is something to which we who have trusted in Christ belong. The general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, Hebrews 12, verse 23. The term firstborn there tells us of the character, of the composition of the church. Firstborn, this word has several connotations, all of them wonderful. The firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance. And here we have a whole city of such heirs. Heirs receive their portion by birth, not by achievement, not by deserts. The firstborn come into their rights by the new birth in Christ. This status is realized solely by faith. 
as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. The firstborn are also those who are especially beloved of the Father. We think back to the Exodus and Egypt, and we remember that it was the firstborn sons who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Surely that was on Paul's mind as he compared Sinai to Zion. The angel of the death of death came to the land of the Nile, and the only doors which were passed over were those marked by the redeeming blood of the Lamb. The firstborn are also those who are, as our text reminds us, enrolled in heaven. When Moses brought the children of Israel out of Israel out of Egypt and to Sinai in the desert, he was to enroll their names in the annals of the nation, Numbers 3, verses 40 to 43. That was an enrollment on earth. But the firstborn are recorded in heaven, a source of great rejoicing and praise. As the fourth century church father, Athanasius, exclaimed, who would not wish to enjoy the high companionship of these? Who would not desire to be enrolled with these that he may hear with them, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Matthew 25, verse 34. Of course, this is the city of God. God himself is there. And as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 says, you have come to God, the judge of all. This was also something the Israelites found on Mount Sinai, a judging God, a law-giving God who gave the Ten Commandments upon the mount. For sinners, such as the sight that should chill the warmest welcome. Israel largely misunderstood. For sinners understand that the law means I am condemned, my fault, my guilt. And yet that's not at all the meaning here in Hebrews 12 and verse 23. Indeed, the point is quite the opposite of condemnation. For here in Zion, we see God as judge, but no fire, no smoke, no darkness, no gloom, no threatening blare of trumpets. All the trappings of condemnation are gone. Indeed, what we see with this judging God is not hell, but heaven. Those who are arrested and punished, I mean, rather, not a judging God who arrests and punish, but rather the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Hebrews 12, verse 23. The host around this God and judge have been acquitted in his court. They are judged righteous. They are made perfect. This is the host to which all who have believed in Jesus belong. What is for others thus a throne of judgment is for those who believe a throne, the judging God's throne of grace. In Zion, our God stands as judge, but not to condemn, rather to vindicate. Indeed, the very fact that he is judge increases, increases all the more our comfort, for he will be righteous in accepting us in Christ 
who already paid the entire debt of our sin. This is what Paul also said in more expanded form in Romans 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Whom will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. We all come to God who is the judge of all. No human being will not come to God who is the judge of all. For all who are righteously judged on account of their sin and never knew salvation in Christ refused the Savior, the day of judgment will be a day of unmitigated horror. Eternal hell stands on the other side of that day. But for those who have turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and trust in his condemnation in their place, the day of judgment will be a day of unmitigated glory. For them, eternity, with the only infinitely righteous, gracious, and merciful God, stands on the other side of that day. And now at last we come to verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Christ perfectly fulfilled what Sinai represented. He fulfilled the law. He did not nullify it. He did not invalidate it. He fulfilled it. He did what no sinful human being can do. He obeyed the law fully. He kept the law perfectly. He fulfilled its letter and its spirit by obeying the law both externally and internally in his behavior and in his heart. Because of Christ's work, Sinai now stands as a mountain of fulfillment, a fulfillment that occurred on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where Jesus died and rose again in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And as a result, God's people no longer identify with the place where God's law was given, but identify with the place where God's law was fulfilled. As Hebrews 11 made clear, we who believe today are united in faith with those who have gone before us. All who believe are perfected and enrolled in heaven. No unrighteous or imperfect person will be in the assembly in heaven. None of us is righteous. None of us is perfect in our own or on our own accord. 
our righteousness, our perfection, depends entirely on the imputed righteousness of Christ put on our account. His perfection becomes our perfection. His righteousness, our righteousness. So there is no just human righteousness in Zion, only Christ's righteousness, which all who believe are partakers of. Abel offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. He offered a blood sacrifice, Hebrews 11, verse 4. This testified, as we've already seen, to Abel's faith in God and in God's word. And yet Abel's sacrifice of blood did not save him. The blood spilled in so many sacrifices in the temple, in the tabernacle, restrained the wrath of God. But none of those sacrifices satisfied the wrath of God forever. The blood of Christ accomplished what the animal sacrifices never could. His blood is sufficient to forgive sin and save us from the judgment that sin deserves. Therefore, as our text says, Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. By his sacrifice, by his sacrifice alone, we come to Zion and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Christ's sprinkled blood says better things than Abel's because Jesus' blood saves. It completely washes away sin and satisfies God's wrath once and for all. What a contrast there is between Abel's blood and Christ's. Both were killed by their brothers. Abel by Cain and Jesus by his fellow Jews. And Jesus killed no less than that by the sins of the firstborn brothers who will share eternity with him. Jesus was killed by us, his brothers. But what a different message Jesus' blood proclaims. Abel's blood brought storms, if you will, upon the earth, while Jesus' blood cries, Peace, be still. Just as those words calmed the winds and the waves when Jesus spoke them from the boat. Ah! I don't know what I did. <laughs> Just as, as, as Jesus' words spoken from the boat calmed the wind and the waves. His voice drives away the storms, the fire, the tempest, all that scariness at Mount Sinai and makes Mount Zion, where we are brought, this place of peace and calm and joy forevermore. So let's consider what our text today says about what it means to be a Christian. What are we to understand from our text this morning about the Christian life? I want to suggest to you that the key is found, look in our text at verse 22, which says, you have come. 
to Mount Zion. Not you are coming, not you will someday come, you have come. This is the dark glass, if you will, taken away so that we may have God's perspective on our very existence in the present as his people. This is not merely a picture of your future reality. This is now your reality if you are a genuine Christian. You have come to this mountain where the threatening flames burn no more. You have come to this city in which the worship of angels surrounds the people of God. You have come to this church. I don't mean grace-free. I mean the church universal. You have come to this church vindicated by God, proclaimed righteous and perfect in Christ. Why? Why? This is where the passage leads us. All these things are true because of the one an essential thing because you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to his better speaking blood. So think on this. When you consider even fellow believers who are weak, who are sinful, and who may have just about worn out your patience, Perhaps they have dried the reservoir of the love that Christ has given you. If you could see them now, those who require of you so much effort to live amongst in the church, those who let you down, those who struggle with sin, if you could see them now as they certainly will be in this city, to which you and they now belong, you would marvel at the glory of God and the glory that God has prepared for those who love him. You would see them differently. They are destined for glory to be perfected, conformed to the image of their firstborn brother, Jesus Christ. They have become citizens of God's mountain city because they have come to faith in Christ. Think about this too. When you look at yourself in those more honest moments, and when perhaps you despair over besetting sins, when you find yourself weighed down in filth, in weakness, in doubt, in fear. God pulls aside the veil and shows you what he already sees in you. The spirit of the righteous made perfect. This is how God sees us now in Christ. Now in Christ. And this is our destiny according to the power of God's saving grace. You see, Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner. He rests enthroned in his city. 
His saving work secure in your life. He calls us to rest our hearts in Him with thanksgiving to offer to God the very worship of our lives. The old covenant has been fulfilled and we come to Zion. We are not called to a mountain we are not allowed to touch. We are called to a Savior, the very Savior who told Thomas, place your finger here in the holes in his hands. Place your hand here on the wound in his side. John 20, verse 27. So I say to you, live and rejoice in Zion praising Him in all, loving Him in all, serving Him in all with joy and thanksgiving. Let's pray. You, Lord, the one who has every right to judge the one who has every right to condemn, you have saved and you have set us right in Christ and you see us pure, righteous, holy. Even now, a marvel, Lord, of your grace and all to your glory, we are thankful, we are humbled, We fail to love you as we should, but desire to do so. Help us, Lord, to love you back as you have loved us. We pray in Christ. Amen. Stand with us.
Recognize where you are at Mount Zion and rejoice in him evermore. Depart in his peace. Amen. <laughs> 